And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Athletic MBA Show, Monday through on the Athletic Podcast Network. From the Golden Gate to the New York Bay. What I have access to is a bit different than the public. Tamper with you. Welcome to Tampering. We're this beautiful game of basketball that we all love and talk about every single day. With Sam Payne, Anthony Slater, uh-huh. and Fred Katz. Uh-huh. To be able to bring people together. Reportedly at the center of an NBA investigation into tampering accusations. And the message to executive in the league is not talking about players on other teams. What did I do? The charges filed. Impermissible contact. Right or wrong? Tampering charges are really difficult to prove. You know me, I talk. <laughs> awkward to even talk about. I can't even mention Dean's anymore. Actually, what I like to play with Kevin Durant. The trial you want with tampering. They're always ahead of the rules. It's not rocket science. I didn't tamper. I'm just telling you what happened. I'm just telling you what happened. Here's your host, Sam Amick. Hello and welcome to the Tampering Podcast, part of the Athletic NBA Show Network. I'm Sam Amick, NBA National Writer at The Athletic. And I'm here this week with a, a, a young, you know, I was going to say young man, Will. Like, you grow man. How old are you now, Will? What, what are we I'm, I'm, I'm 34. I'm, I'm technically still young in this business, but I got some gray hairs coming through. <laughs> so I ain't feeling so young these days. Well, th- this week you're you're fresh in terms of being my co-host, man. We got no Fred Katz, yeah. no Anthony This is the All Finals production. We are out here in Miami, heading into Game yeah. Three. We're deep. listen. If you're if you're not at the finals, you're not invited on this. Podcast. That's how we're doing. <laughs> finals attendees only. Finals only. We're pretty deep now in this Heat Nuggets life. It's been fantastic to see you on the road and and be partnering with our whole group. Uh, but this week on the pod, will. We are going to dive in on all things finals, uh, and and then in honor of our guy, Fred Katz, who hates when I talk about Lakerland, of course we're going to talk about Kyrie Irving, LeBron James, Luka Doncic, super teams that will never happen, but that's okay, <laughs> um, and, and other things around the association. Uh, but, man, Will, I'm going to set the scene, and if anybody doesn't know your fantastic work, you know, Will is doing double duty here in the finals. He is typically our fantastic Pelicans beat writer covering Zion and and the rest of that group in New Orleans, but he's on the Miami Heat beat for this stretch all the way through the playoffs, which, A, kudos to you for putting in OT, and B, uh, and this is some, you know, I think a lot of what we're going to get into is I love the idea of a very good reporter like yourself having a fresh set of eyes on a Heat group that I have always found incredibly interesting, and I know it's, it's cliche, but the whole Heat culture thing, and, like, I've had my own version of this where, you get to spend extended time around them and start to decide for yourself what you think about that whole, you know, quasi infamous operation, if that makes sense. Uh, but before we go down that road, just to lay the table here, you know, we obviously got a one, one series. Will the Miami just absolutely stunned that building in game two the other night ball arena and Joel Murray misses that three late. They would have put it into OT. Uh, I know we're a couple of days removed from it, but considering that a lot of us, I think, were, you know, after game one, thinking this thing would be a short series. How shocked were you and, and what kind of takeaways you have going into game three? 
Nah, I mean, first off, thank you for all the kind words, my man. I appreciate it. It's been a, a crazy experience. And like you said, it's been really interesting. You know, I've been covering the Pels for seven years and getting the opportunity where I kind of came into the playoffs saying, hey, I'll be there for, you know, a couple games in Miami. They'll get bounced in the first round and I can go ahead back to my Pelicans business. But now I've been able to, you know, be embedded with them for, you know, I don't even know what it's been a month, two months, who knows, during this playoff run. And just really just seeing how they operate on a daily basis, you know, how Spo talks, how those guys kind of communicate and kind of deliver the same message. And and you said it, I mean, as it's it's cliche as it is, heat culture is very real. And it's the way I wrote this, you know, before the finals, it's not just what they do is how they live. It's right. just what they believe in every day and just how they kind of operate and they kind of churn out these guys year in and year out. And we're surprised when Gabe Vincent, Max Struess, Duncan Robinson, these guys come out of nowhere. Uh, but it's not a coincidence. It's what Miami does. And I think you saw it in that game too. What was really stunning is I think if, if I would have told you Miami was going to win game two, you probably would have said, well, Jimmy probably had 35, eight, yes, nine, fine. right? Yeah. Jimmy Butler had probably had a fantastic game. And then uh, Jimmy's numbers ended up being pretty good. He had 21 points, nine assists. Uh, but really they won that game because of Max Struess coming out hot after going old for 10 in game one. Gabe Vincent playing an incredible game. I think you saw uh, kind of heat culture shining through and that these young guys who they've developed in-house being on a stage like that where you're down 0-1, you know, half of the, the, the city of Denver is already getting their T-shirts ready to, for the parade. And those guys came in and say, nah, this is going to be a series. We're ready to play. We're not scared. And that's what makes this team, Heat team so special that no matter what stage they're on, no matter what team they're playing against, those guys come in ready to play and they're unafraid. And that's what makes this series so interesting. Cause I think if you just go player by player, I think everybody would agree that the, the Nuggets have the more talented roster. Right. Uh, but the Heat just have that intangible in them every time they step on the floor that they're ready to fight and they believe. And, and I think that's something that you can never take away from a team is that belief. And that's what they have, I think, over anybody else in this playoff field. No, I mean, great perspective. There's a lot to unpack there. I'm going to start with this. You kind of alluded to the idea that a lot of people thought Denver would be, you know, on its way and, and celebrating pretty soon here. Admittedly, one of the things I love about covering the playoffs in, in like a day-to-day marathon fashion is that the, the pettiness is inevitable, like one or two or three games into each series, right? So this one, post-game two, and I had this in my column today, I kind of alluded to it. Post-game two, somebody from the Heat, I'd kind of, you know, leaned in a little bit and shared with me that, uh, you know, hey, you happen to see that that column, and this is a guy I respect great, greatly. And, and listen, we've we've all written stuff that that you could argue might miss the mark. But Mark Kisler from the Denver Post been doing this a long time, and, and Mark had a column that he basically said, you know, just clear the streets, get the parade ready, here come the Nuggets, <laughs> you know. And that is how a lot of people I think felt after Game One, and you know, and and he kind of had the the stones to put himself out there and write it, but. When they lose game two, of course, the Heat are going to – this is what happens. Then they kind of say, oh, yeah, we saw that. You know, that we thought that was an interesting little, you know, bulletin board material. And and here they are. But, you know, the SPO part to me, as far as we takeaways game two going into game three, watching SPO um, kind of post-game press conference and the way his mind works, and, and a lot of focus, of course, on that last answer to the question from Ramona Shelburne of ESPN when she asked about how they guarded Jokic. Um, I'm going to kind of skip past that. I thought that was, you know, not, not that big a deal, but Spo talking about the complexity of a series like this um, and talking about the idea 
that uh, a they have a ton of respect for this Nuggets team and they they didn't want to lose that kind of ethos as they go into Game Three. But also, um, I don't know, I'm not expressing it very well, Will, but like you saw this mad scientist a trying to get out of the press conference very quickly because he had a lot of work <laughs> to go back to do. Um, and and he talked about some of these adjustments that you know he puts Kevin Love in that starting lineup. And I hear you on the Jimmy Butler part that he didn't play all that well, but defensively, Kevin being on that lineup obviously moves Jimmy over to Jamal. And Jamal, you know, was not nearly as impactful in game two as he was in game one. I don't know if you want to go down that road or what else jumped out at you, but, um, you know, they got it done. No, I don't know what you mean, Sam. Uh, I get the sense that Spo loves talking to us every time we go to one of these <laughs> press conferences. He he just indulges in the the media experience. But no, nah, I think that that's uh, that's I would say if I were to rank what what's been most interesting about covering the Heat throughout these playoff runs, throughout this playoff run, is just seeing how Spo operates and the way right. his mind works. I, I think he's a brilliant coach, and I think you, you knew that going in, but being around him on a daily basis. You really get a glimpse of just the way he views the game, uh, the way he prepares that team, how he, he's able to kind of balance his uh, his logic, the way he moves on a day to day basis. But he's a very emotional coach and he coaches with his feeling. He's not a, a, a pure X's and O's guy. He coaches. He, he allows his, uh, you know, his feelings and his emotions to come out, uh, in the way he coaches. If you, you watch him on the sidelines, he's stomping, he's, he's running on the court, he's grabbing people. And, well, how and many, also, real quick, just real quick, how many times in this run have you heard him refer to himself as a masochist, which always cracks? Oh me. my God. There, there are so many spoisms yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've taken, uh, from this playoff run, the, the, the masochist, uh, the, the beauty of the grind. He loves that right. one. Uh, uh, saying right. Jimmy Butler is gnarly. Uh, he's got a lot of spoisms, but I think uh, one thing that just shines through constantly when you talk to him is just his perspective from being here and doing this before. And I think you referred yeah. to the to, to the Mark Kisler column. I think uh, the the feeling you got from a lot of Denver people where they were so excited to get that game one win, and for Miami they were like, "Hey, uh, we've been there, done that. Each of our yes. three titles we won before, we lost game one, uh, right. so we know how to bounce back from a game one loss. We know this is." It's a long series, and and I think Spo above anybody really understands uh, just the ebbs and flow of a playoff series, especially when you get to this stage and the finals. It just runs for so long with these multiple days between, and you have all of this talk about you know when you lose a game, how terrible your team is, or the other team is so much better than yours. How Nikola Jokic is the best ever, and Jimmy Butler he he doesn't have it for this playoff series, and they they heard that. For multiple days going into game two and they just came in ready and I think uh the way Eric Spolstra kind of has that team prepared and they have that experience I think that's one of the, the interesting factors in this series that as talented as Denver is those guys haven't been here before and with Miami you know they, they don't they don't have D-Wade or LeBron walking through that door but you you feel that organization and their experience in in this uh in this field and then in this deep into the playoffs and they know how to to, to move through this and they know how to kind of take it all in and do what you're supposed to do to make sure you're prepared and I think it's going to be fascinating to see how they come out game three because it went all of a sudden this series went from man Denver's in control they're in the driver's seat to all of a sudden Miami wins game three and everybody's sitting around like "Uh uh-oh here we go again they're about to shot the world one more time so I want to go a little farther down the road. You talk about demeanor. You talk about 
the differences between the two sides. Although before we do that, as a, on a lighter note, I'm going to acknowledge, man, we are officially in Miami. And if the YouTube crowd is watching this, man, I got sweat coming down my forehead. I had to turn the AC off. So the noise wasn't messing up the pod. You could tell like four minutes ago, I'm losing my train of thought. Cause I'm going, good God, I'm going to sauna in this hotel room. So we are officially in South Florida. Uh, which I have not been here for years. Um, and, and hey, listen, man, I think it's like ninety right now in New Orleans. So, I, so we're pretty lucky. See, right I'm now. a dry, we, I'm we a dry to... northern like Northern California is dry <laughs> heat. That's what I'm used to. There's a lot of humidity in this air. But you know, the, the Nuggets, you know, they're feeling the heat, pun intended, right? So after game two, and I and you know me well enough, I'm a sucker for. Of course, we're going to get into some more of the X's and O's of this series, but the human component always uh, intrigued me quite a bit. And I I thought after game two and, and without any hyperbole attached that there was a pretty significant difference in the demeanor and the two sides in terms of handling loss. After game one, Miami could not have been more mellow, light yeah. even. You know what I mean? I wrote about Kevin yeah. Love and I talked to him after game one, the way he kind of rolled. He kind of embodies how they all were after game one. Um, they were not sweating this thing at all. So go to game two. Now I get it. They're the AC. Pressure is not the same as it is for Denver. You can make that argument. I would also counter by saying, especially, you know, Jimmy Butler in particular, as, as great as he is, as fantastic as he's been in these playoffs, we all know Jimmy gets up in the morning with one goal in mind. And if they lose in this finals and he still doesn't have a championship, then he's going to feel like it was a failure of a season. And so this is a championship group that, you know, has its own expectations are as great as Denver's, if that makes sense. But they were chill after game one. Denver after game two, um, I'm looking left, looking right, and, man, there were signs all over the place of them cracking a bit. And we'll see if that carries over into game three. And, and again, this is kind of what, what I wrote today. And, and to share a few of those things, for one, not to make it about the media, but you had quite a few guys that did not talk post-game media. And it just felt like it was a group that just, you know, they were in their fields a little bit, didn't want to talk, didn't want to share, didn't want to have to stand in front of those mics, um, you know, Michael Porter Jr., I believe, was the only one who did so without being excused by the league. Uh, there were other reasons for Aaron Gordon, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, but whatever the reasons, and I'm not sitting here trying to, you know, kind of put them out there like that, but, like, it shows something to me when guys, uh, you know, handle postgame like that. Um, Michael Malone was very tough on his team, and we'll see if that sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But to have your coach after game three – publicly, you know, saying things like it's the finals, you know, I was worried about energy. It's a concern and, and really, you know, raising red flags for all the world to see. Uh, I'm very curious to see their demeanor going into game three in that hostile Miami environment. And during the playoffs, that place does get pretty lit. Um, and, and Miami's composure, Miami's poise, and, and the idea that they felt honestly, more like the championship group in terms of the way they carried themselves, I think makes this series even more interesting. Yeah. And the tie to two ends, I don't think it was just a, I don't, I don't want to say lack of composure post game, but I think uh, just the, the the lack of experience maybe you saw was post game. And I think during the game, you saw kind of Denver lose, you know, grip of the rope and just the way they, they were defending uh, Miami, where you saw so many times just a Miami guy wide open from the three point line, just a, a missed rotation or, you know, two guys doubling Duncan Robinson coming off of action and leaving Gabe Vincent wide open. I think you saw, 
consistently, it just seemed like Denver was just kind of lost out there. They were unsure. There was a lack of communication. And you saw kind of the mistakes you see from a team maybe in round one of the playoffs, but you, you rarely see uh, teams just make consistent mistakes and just gaffs the way that Denver did in game two. And I wrote this, you know, after the game that as as well as the, the, the three-point numbers look for Miami after the game, 17 for 35, if you, if you go through all of those three-pointers, and I did after the game, you kind of sit back and say, man, they could have made 20, 22 three-pointers easily in this yeah. game just from the looks they were getting wow. and just how often Miami was just getting wide open shots. And I think that's where you saw the frustration come from Michael Malone after the game because it wasn't just Miami who was running this complex system uh, where the, the guys were getting lost and there was uncertainty. It was just one drive, one pass, guys wide open. And I think uh, you – over these past couple of days, I'm sure Michael Malone is getting on his team about just staying locked in and just understanding, you know, how to communicate, how to be in the right place at the right time. And I think you saw specifically with, with Michael Porter Jr. and Contavious Caldwell Pope, I think you saw those two guys just out of just just not in the right spaces. And a lot of times you saw, I think, Contavious Caldwell Pope fouled two three point shooters during the course of that game. I think you kind of saw them losing their poise a little bit as that game went along. I think they, they were all kind of beating their chest and feeling themselves a little bit as they went up 15 in the second quarter. And as we said before, we know with Miami, they're never going to feel scared. They're never going to feel like, oh, man, uh, we, we don't have it tonight. They're just going right. to keep plugging along. And as they started cutting into that lead, you saw Denver just kind of just get shook a little bit during the course of that game. And I think that's something that Michael Malone is hoping he can use to, to build on. Uh, but one thing with this Miami team, and I think you saw it in the Milwaukee Bucks series, once they smell blood, right. once they kind of see uh, that the Russian bleeds, that they say, uh-oh, uh, we got them. <laughs> and I think you saw it against uh, Giannis where they said, uh-oh, we got these guys. Jimmy Butler was talking smack to Drew Holiday. That was him saying, yeah, we got you. We're not just going to beat you tonight. We're going to beat you mentally. We're going to, we're going to snatch your heart out. And I think that's what Michael Malone really feared. I think you kind of saw that in his post game. He said he was kind of saying it without saying it that, Hey, we can't allow these guys to kind of take our hearts to, to beat us mentally. We right. got to be prepared to play these guys because we can't just live off of talent because that Miami team is great for so many more reasons than just talent. Couple of takeaways for me on the Nuggets side, Will, that I would love to get your thoughts on. Uh, for one, I mentioned Porter Jr. and his post game stuff, and and even beyond that, from a composure, poise, are you ready for this stage moment type of thing? I think that's a guy I'm going to watch in Game Three. He right now through two games is giving them, uh, let's see here, nine and a half points a game. And uh, he's shooting a, a cool 17.6% from three-point range. You know, he's just yes. not playing well at all. Um, to, to give the quick comparison during the regular season, you know, that's a guy who gave him 17.5 points a game and shot at a 41.4% clip. Um, that matters a great deal. But even more than that, I'm curious what your opinion is of the Jamal Murray situation. We mentioned Jimmy Gardenham in game two. Within that, one of my favorite Spolster comments, again, part of how I do appreciate how he will pull the curtain back on his process and, and tell you his thinking. And he said during his postgame press conference, 
and I'm paraphrasing that he had not in game one simply had the foresight to understand why Kevin Love needed to be in the starting lineup. And that Jimmy, now Jimmy didn't, there were plenty of possessions defensively where I remember thinking to myself, you know, and I got the old binoculars out for playoff basketball just to make sure I get an even closer <laughs> look. Like Jimmy made a handful of business decisions defensively during that game. I'm not trying to say that Jimmy was, you know, Michael Jordan at his, in his prime defensively in that game, but he's still Jimmy Butler and he's going to make life tougher on Jamal Murray. And again, Jamal struggled until late. He he almost pulled that thing off a couple late threes, did his thing. But within that, did you happen to see the, uh, the Draymond Green, Steve Kerr perspective talking about Jamal uh, after game two? Did this cross your desk at all? I saw some of the clips. I didn't see him talk about Jamal, though. No. It's real simple, but the perspective I thought was great. And to see, you know, a championship people like Steve Kerr, Draymond Green talking about it was really fascinating. On Draymond's pod, he essentially, they talked about the idea, and Steve in particular, that you could tell that the Heat, you know, in their coaches' meetings and the team meetings, that it was almost as if they said, wait a minute now, Jokic, clearly the best player on the Nuggets, probably best player in the entire NBA. But Jamal Murray might be the head of the snake. And if we can cut that head off, you know, then we might have something in this series. Do you feel like what they did with Jamal is sustainable? What Because as, as great as Joker is, you know, he had four assists, which is a little misleading. Some of that stuff, I think, is variance and, and guys missing open looks. But, you know, four assists for Joker is, is not their formula for success. But But on top of that, just Jamal has been fantastic for damn near this entire playoff run. And if they find a way to slow him down, you know, I think Denver's going to struggle. Yeah, I think you you hit the nail on the head saying I think a big adjustment for Miami was shifting Jimmy Butler over to him, just putting more of a physical presence on him, uh, not allowing him to kind of bully guys the way Jamal can at times when you put like a Gabe Vincent uh, or maybe even a Caleb Martin at times on him. I think he can kind of outmuscle those guys. He can't do that with Jimmy Butler. I think we don't talk enough when we get to this stage of how beneficial it can be where you can allow your stars to guard other stars. Because I can tell you one thing, one thing a ref won't do is call a bunch of fouls on Jimmy Butler when he's yep, guarding yep, Jamal yep. Murray. Because they want to see those matchups as much as we do, right. as, 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 as they even if they won't say it. So when your star is guarding another star, your star can get a lot, away with a lot defensively. And I think Jimmy, you saw him kind of, you know, putting his body on Jamal a little bit, making it tougher on him. But the thing with Jamal, and I think this could be a good thing and a bad thing at times, I think you know he's a just a tough shot taker and a tough shot maker and I think with him you mentioned it if he hits that step back three at the end of the game we're talking about how great Jamal is how he came up in the clutch how he you know he stepped up in the moment and he ended up missing it so now he didn't have as great of a game Jimmy Butler had him on lock you know what I mean I think that's just the way the narrative goes right. in the finals and how easily he can shift from sure. one way or the other. And I think for him, with Jamal, he just got to remain confident. He's got to continue to take the shots he takes. And I think playing next to Jokic, it allows him to get good looks consistently. And he can kind of play in space a little bit more than some of these other great guards. Uh, but for him, uh, I think he's got to continue to do what he's done as far as back-to-back games with 10 assists. And I think as long as he's getting off the ball, he's keeping his teammates involved, even if Michael Porter Jr., Kentavious Caldwell, Pope, uh, Aaron Gordon, some of these guys aren't shooting the ball as well. I think he's doing a good job at keeping everybody involved, not just jacking up 25, 30 shots when he felt his team slipping away. And I think as long as he's playing that way, the offense will kind of figure itself out. Uh, it has been a surprise to see how much 
Uh, Michael Porter Jr. just hasn't shot the ball very well because we know he's one of the top tier shooters in this league. And I think it's going to be interesting because we saw, especially in game two, Christian Brown and Bruce Brown just flat out play better than the, the, the starting wings for Denver. And I wonder if that continues how much Michael Malone just kind of says, hey, you know what, I'm just going to leave Bruce Brown out there. I'm going to just leave right. Christian Brown out there instead of going back to our starters. Uh, but for Jamal, I, I think he's a guy, we know he takes on the challenge. I think he's going to uh, feel some type of way of missing that potential game time three-pointer at the end. So I'm expecting him to come out firing in game three, and I'm expecting Jimmy Butler to be on him again. Uh, but like I said, I, I just want to see him continue to just make good decisions with the ball, and I think that'll end up paying off for him in the end. All right, well, before we move on to the obligatory Laker discussion, that you know, it's a tampering pod. So if Kyrie's let me, let me get out, my swear jar ready. I know. Come on, man. If Kyrie's <laughs> gonna be out here, you know, flirting with that tampering line, flirting with other NBA stars, of course we're gonna talk about it. But before we do, I, I just in the interest of completely exhausting this this kind of cool Will Guillory playoff experience, I got two quick questions for you. <laughs> Number one is give me your favorite heat moment in terms of media moment whether it's conversation something you saw you've been on this road for a minute and before you answer that second question is just this playoff life is different and i'm 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 drawing a blank on and and i'm talking media wise i'm drawing a blank on the deepest you had gone coverage wise before so i'm curious you know like (laughs) how far you've gone and just off the court give me because it's planes trains automobiles late nights early mornings all that stuff i want your favorite off-court playoff moment. What what do you think on those two? Oh, God. Uh, to answer a second question first, the, the, the furthest I ever made it was second round with the Pels. Uh, when they swept Portland in the first round, they ended up playing Golden State in the second round. Like And like I said before, the experience of getting to see Golden State for an entire playoff series, well, it didn't last a long. It only went five games. Uh, but just that was when KD was there, and they were kind of in the peak of the Warriors run, just kind of seeing the way they moved uh, on a daily basis was, was extremely interesting. And obviously it didn't end well for, uh, for the Pelicans because that following year, the Marcus Cousins leaves, Anthony Davis demands a trade, and my entire world <laughs> blows up in front of me as right. the Pelicans writer thinking that that was just the start, but really that was the end of the Anthony Davis era. Uh, but for me, I would say not to beat the, the heat culture thing down as much as we already have, but, but I think for sure my coolest media moment to this point uh, i got a chance to talk to udonis haslam one-on-one uh for a heat culture piece i did leading up to game one and just kind of hear him talk about uh what what makes heat culture as strong as it is and what's allowed it what it has allowed it to sustain as long as it has i think his uh perspective is so interesting and i think for a lot of people on the outside, they kind of look at UD and say, man, this guy doesn't play any games. He's just wearing his warm up every now and then. He might threaten to punch somebody in the face. <laughs> you know, why is he so valuable? And when you hear him talk, it's like, wow, uh, yeah. you understand what makes Miami so special and what's allowed them to do what they've done over decades now. And it's not just Udonis Haslam, but he's just a cog in what they've done, you know, at every level, whether it be Spolstra, Pat Riley, uh, those, those guys have so much longevity in what they've done in Miami. And they have a belief system in how they move and the, how they bring guys in. And, and one of the quotes UD gave me was, hey, uh, we don't care what you've done throughout your whole career. You're going to do what we do. 
here in Miami, the way we do it. And right. you saw, and, and I think it was Jimmy after the game of Bam out of Bayou talking about there was a moment in the fourth quarter where Udonis Haslam kind of sat in the coach's chair. And I promise you, he wasn't talking X's and O's. When he sat down in that coach's chair, he was kind of calling some guys out and saying, hey, uh, you got to dig deep. You got to win this game. Uh, not just we're running pick and rolls the right way. You got to come and show some heart. You got to show some guts. And that's what it takes to win at this level. And those guys understand it because UD, he's what finals number seven now. He, he, he understands what this stage looks like. He understands, like we said, when a Denver team is starting to let go of the rope and you got to be able to jump on them right. when you kind of sense that. And I would say, uh, off the court moment, uh, just for me, this is my first finals. So just kind of walking in there for game one for the first time and hearing the national anthem and kind of one of the things I always do before every game is I kind of just sit there and I look around at the crowd and kind of take it all in and just kind of taking that moment in for game one. Uh, man, it was, it was surreal. That's what I've been telling everybody that's been asking me. It's surreal just to see, uh, uh, you know this because you've been around, but I didn't know this until being in this experience. You can cover the playoffs all the way up into game seven of the Eastern Conference Finals, Western Conference Finals. And once that flips, once that switch flips and you're in the finals, it's just a different environment. Everything's different. The amount of media, uh, the, this, the, the environment, the amount of people around the city, around the arena, uh, around these teams, the, 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 the entourages get a little bigger. Uh, the, the team staff all of a sudden looks a little bigger. Yeah. Uh, just, the, you just feel how big the finals is and how much this stage is different. And, you know, I was there for the, the end of the Eastern Conference finals and I was like, Oh, this isn't that different from what I'm used to. And then you get there for game one of the finals and it's like, Oh my God. Yeah. You, you feel that this is the big stage and you feel, uh, just how you can understand why. Guys kind of get to the finals and you hear Eric Spolster say, man, it's so valuable to have Kyle Lowry and Kevin Love here. Yeah. Guys who have been through this and know what it's like. And you hear that and you say, okay, that's kind of coach's speak. But no, that's yeah. extremely valuable to have guys who can deal with all of this extra stuff and still keep their focus on the main thing. Because uh, it's a lot once you get to the finals. Well, stage. And, and one thing we're probably not, I mean, it's all great perspective. We're probably not empathetic enough about in the media is that as far as these players and these coaches and their routines and their rhythms will like they have the same reaction that you do when it, especially if it's their first one and the media part is a big part of it. Like you, you all of a sudden are expected to do more. The NBA mm -hmm. is a business, right? So when you hit this stage, they don't care what city you're from, how, you know, big market, small market, like you are expected to help sell the soap. You know what I mean? And that means talk every day. And, and you see that, some of these different habits that players and coaches might have during the regular season, they reach the final stage and it's like, no, the NBA is in charge out here. And and that yep. I think does matter is these athletes are trying to keep that rhythm to not, you know, wake up every day going, Oh boy, it's the finals. It's the finals. No, you just want to compete like you normally do. So on top of that, I've actually, it's been funny for me in this particular finals, getting a rhythm again after a couple of years where the finals were different. If you know, 2019, mm -hmm. you go, Warriors Raptors that was normal but 2020 the bubble I was there but that's you know never going to be replicated that was its own thing uh Bucks Suns were kind of back but media access is limited the group is much much smaller very different experience you know last year um you know you're 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 kind of making your way back but this is more 
full force. And, and I think for everybody involved, you kind of feel that difference. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service that you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, brother, before we get out of here, because uh, we got shuttles to catch and, and uh, another media day <laughs> to get to, um, this this Kyrie Irving-LeBron thing, and I'll probably just kind of hit the tip of the iceberg with it uh, and maybe set the stage for next week when cats can make me fill up the swear jar. But, like, <laughs> everybody to me is kind of missing the mark uh, in terms of the the takeaways and what this reporting is. And if anybody missed it, our Sham Sharania – uh, had reported that the Kyrie Irving had reached out to LeBron to talk about possibly joining him in Dallas. Now, you know, in terms of this little thing known as the CBA and salary caps and rules of the association, that that you know that kind of prospect is incredibly dim. Uh, and the idea to me of the Lakers uh, cooperating on a potential buyout to let LeBron go to Dallas uh, seems like a non-starter as well. But I think I'm always a sucker for like, all right, don't get caught up in the, well, this is delusional or even dumb because it can't happen. That's not the takeaway. The takeaway is that from the second the Lakers lost to the Nuggets, LeBron wasted zero time sending a signal that he was not content with the yeah, current buddy. state of affairs. That is it. you know. And I know this is, I'm subjective because I lived this, but when we had a conversation mid-season that certainly made the rounds and that he had pushed back against, when he famously said, y'all know what the F needs to happen in regards to the roster. You go from that, which is conceivably applying pressure to Lakers GM Rob Palenka, to Rob, and, you know, a lot of times we've been pretty tough on Rob on this podcast. You know, I'll flip it, be like, Rob, maybe maybe took a little while to get there, but it made some great moves and basically did exactly what, LeBron had asked for a more well-rounded team that looked a lot more like the team that won the title in 2020 
and then the Lakers plan and they just, I mean, you don't have to even know this crew with the Lakers these days for them to share with you. No, we are re-signing Austin Reeves. We are re-signing Rui Hajimura. We are not going down the Kyrie Irving road. That's the messaging. Well, guess who does not appear to be happy with that? You know what I mean? Like, so, so whether it's LeBron and Kyrie in LA, LeBron and Kyrie in Dallas, or just, you know, LeBron weighing every possible option. I don't know where it, where it leads. Uh, But if he was happy with the group and ready to try it again next year, uh, you would not be hearing this kind of noise. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you took it here because I think uh, we're going to continue on our uh, media talk vibes here because whenever this type of stuff comes out, I think it's really interesting because the, the reaction for the masses is, Oh my God, Kyrie and LeBron are talking. Will LeBron go to Dallas? And I think for us, and I, I mean, I'll speak for myself, for me, whenever I see these type of reports come out, I say, why is this coming out? Right. <laughs> you know, because right. right. I, I, I reveal something to people who don't know. <laughs> NBA players who play for other teams talk about playing together all the time. Right. This right. isn't this isn't anything right. new. As right. a guy who covered Anthony Davis when he was in New Orleans, people were hitting him up constantly about playing right. elsewhere, right. and he was hitting other people up about. Coming he was to not New Orleans. leaking it, or his people were not leaking it. Exactly. This, it wasn't ended up on Sham's timeline. So the right. fact that we, we're hearing about this right. and LeBron isn't a guy who lets everybody know who he's texting on a daily basis. So the, the fact that we're hearing about this tells you something about LeBron's camp and Kyrie's camp, the way that they're moving. And I think it's, it's fascinating, uh, because I keep going back and forth on kind of who does this benefit more? Who, who would really want this out or us having this conversation? And I think, you're, I think you're exactly right that LeBron's making it clear and he's made it clear throughout his time in, in LA that he wants stars. He wants three stars. He wants four stars on his team in LA. And as much as he enjoyed the experience this year with Austin Reeves, Rui and all of those guys fighting their way to the conference finals, I'm sure he feels like for me to win a title, I need a third star next to me and AD. And it was fun doing this. Uh, but for us to win, I need to do what I did in Miami and get some stars together and win. Uh, and I think uh, it's going to be really interesting the way Rob Palenka moves throughout this offseason, because one thing we know about LeBron is his thoughts are, are going to be heard, <laughs> whether it's behind closed doors or through the media. He's going to let you know how he feels. And Rob Palenka has got a. Uh, and he's done a good job to this point, but he's going to have to continue to kind of move through that minefield of making sure he appeases LeBron while also doing the right thing and not making the same mistake he did with the Russell Westbrook trade. That's the thing that blows me away a little bit is the idea that LeBron would so quickly go back to this script that did not work last time around. Now, the the, the only kind of qualifier there is that, you know, I think his camp would tell you the Westbrook thing obviously backfired, was a disaster. But we can't forget that that was like, option three in terms of star player joining their group. All right. It didn't work out. And and so maybe he's just convinced it would with Kyrie uh, lightheartedly. I'll say maybe this is all D'Lo's fault. You know what I mean? LeBron like saw <laughs> some of D'Lo's play late against Denver thought about the idea that, that the Lakers might give him some sort of a bag and, and didn't like how that made him feel uh, and, and started. I mean, looking- can you blame the guy when your replacement <laughs> is sitting courtside at your home games? You, you, you're thinking you're feeling good when you go home and it's like, oh, yeah, the guy that was replacing me is sitting courtside. <laughs> it's funny you say that. It remi- I've written this. It reminded, that reminds me of 
uh, when D'Lo was with Minnesota, I went to this shoot around. I've told this story on the pod before. It was a, a shoot around or like, 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 man, what do they call them? Like just for the scrubs that aren't getting minutes, it's just to like get your working scrimmage right after shoot around. And D'Angelo was playing with the Timberwolves guys who were not getting time. And Anthony Edwards is sitting courtside and, and D'Lo was having an okay game. And every time he'd hit a shot, he was shouting over at Ant saying, man, why don't you love me? Why don't you love me? And something along those lines, like trying to get Ant's love like that, you know, so, so maybe that was him in the uh, playoffs with Kyrie. Like, why are you in my house, man? Get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Now we'll see what they do. And then the other part of this too, Will is, uh, is the, I mean, and, and I don't have, too much insight on this just yet. I got to make some phone calls, but the Luca component, um, it would make me uncomfortable if I was Luca. Uh, and that's just me talking like the, the chaos that often comes with Kyrie has come to his doorstep very quickly. Um, I heard a pod today, friend and colleague, this group over here at the ringer that I enjoy Logan Murdoch and Raja bill were doing their thing with Howard Beck and, and Raja cracked me up. Cause he said, he goes, did they have a rules change in Dallas where, where they roll three balls out? You know, is that what happens now? Because pretty high usage rate between LeBron James, Kyrie Irving, and Luka Doncic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so to say the least. But I I don't know what to think of all of it because even on the Dallas side, will again I know that it's incredibly implausible, but as you you there's connective tissue there that does kind of you know make you make you think a bit where you got Jason Kidd, very close relationship with LeBron. You know, there's members of that coaching staff in addition that are close with LeBron. You've got Jared Dudley, right? Yeah. Jared Dudley, Greg Sanjean was with the Lakers before Uh, Nico Harrison. You know, I I always remember talking to Nico head of the Mavs front office for a couple of years now after they did the Kyrie trade. And I thought it was so fascinating because, you know, his attitude in regards to the trade, like he at that time anyway, was not losing an ounce of sleep. It was like every day of the week, all day, this is a move you have to do. Uh, you got to, you know, it's Kyrie Irving. You have to do it. And so Nico, you know, is a guy who is a, in terms of his fabric, he's formerly of Nike, incredible relationships with, you know, damn near every star player in the NBA. You know, he, like Kyrie, like LeBron, like he is a star player kind of mentality type of guy. We all know Mark Cuban always swings for the fences. So a lot of layers to this thing. And uh, I do think as it relates to Luca. You know, I sure hope they're uh, they're they're really kind of critically analyzing this thing and being careful about how he you know how he sees the whole uh, the whole vibe. Yeah, and I think the Dallas part of this is super interesting because uh, you kind of see Kyrie putting his point out there how he wants this team built. We haven't really heard what Luca wants, right? right. Or, or what Luca thinks, or how he believes this team should should be built. And we're not even super clear that the the Luca Kyrie thing even works, right? I mean, it went it went five and eleven together last year, and some of that was just the roster kind of got blown up by them acquiring Kyrie. Uh, But I think, man, uh, just the 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 way that that Luca, what his role is going to be moving forward if Kyrie is his teammate, if these kind of stories pop up consistently when Kyrie's in your building, how Luca moves in that environment how he's able to establish himself as a leader uh, because, man, things got really ugly for them at the end of last season. And if things just – you kind of feel that same vibe to start next season. Right. What are they going to do? And how does Luca respond to that? I think a lot of the NBA world is waiting to see uh, because we know Luca is one of the greatest players on the planet. 
and things just aren't going well right now in Dallas. And I think when we talk about this all the time, when you invest yourself in that Kyrie Irving business, you got to brace yourself for what comes with it. And I think this is part of it, <laughs> right? That when I remember, Will, you know, he jumped on social media and said, man, stop asking me about what I'm going to do this summer. I just want to keep it quiet. <laughs> like, okay. Keep it quiet, guys. <laughs> I'll, I'll text Shams and let him know when I want you guys to talk about my, my offseason. Uh, All right, my yeah. friend. I'm going to jump in and cut us off there. I got about 11 minutes to catch this shuttle. Or I don't even know. Are we at the same hotel on this trip? We are not. No, no, no. You're, uh, well, we'll keep that off the internet. Okay, I don't think yeah. we're, we're at the same hotel. All right. I got to jump on this shuttle. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate you. And I'll see you in about 27 minutes. Thanks, Will. Yes, sir. Appreciate you. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.